Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is our Addiction 101 series for medical students. I'm Patrick Beeman, the usual host of this show, joined today um, by Dr. Nora Volkov, who is a psychiatrist and the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse at the NIH. Um, her work has been essential in proving that drug addiction is a disease of the human brain, and she completed med school in Mexico, where she garnered, I found this on your director's page, the Robbins Award for, quote, the best medical student of her generation. That's quite an honor. And she went on to NYU for her residency. Time Magazine named her one of the top 100 people who shape our world, and Fortune identified her as one of 34 leaders who are changing healthcare. And besides hundreds and hundreds of publications and your work in policy and tons of different things, um, I, I, I usually ask our guests, what are you most proud of in, in your career or life? besides what gets listed on your CV? Well, I think that what I'm most proud of is um, actually having contributed to a change in perception of, uh, of addiction as a disease that uh, requires treatment as opposed to um, the culture that criminalizes and uh, stigmatizes people with addictions. I think that as a physician, um, we do an enormous amount of disfavor to uh, our patients by not being intimately involved with the screening and the treatment interventions for people that are suffering from substance use disorder, whether it is at the early stages or later on when they are more addicted. And that by doing so, not only are we um, missing an opportunity to properly intervene and treat them, but we're also uh, basically jeopardizing our management of a wide variety of medical diseases. I have learned particularly, I think this has become very, very clear with the COVID pandemic, that individuals with substance use disorders have much, much higher prevalence rates of medical, chronic medical diseases, cardiovascular, pulmonary, metabolic, immunological. And this has been very much neglected in general and people don't recognize it. They, they, they know that yes, if you smoke cigarettes, you are more likely to have pulmonary pathology and cancer. But behind it, there's a wide, a very high risk of higher, higher prevalence of things like diabetes, uh, obesity, uh, dementia, and cerebrovascular pathology. And, and, and it is, uh, you look at it and you can see consistently a much higher risk of, of multiple disease conditions, including infections, of course. So it is, um, that's what I would say I'm, I'm perhaps most proud if, if I have contributed to a change and the recognition that the healthcare system has an opportunity and has the obligation to address and to provide with, with treatment um, to individuals with substance use disorder. Uh, like, I guess, as I've said it many times, like we treat any other medical condition. 
Absolutely. Um, my my inspiration for for this series we're doing was I, I started working. I, I always got along with patients who have substance use disorders, um, even throughout residency. And I was in the military, so I did not see a lot of uh, substance use disorder uh, disorders there. But um, once I got out, I started working at a um, level one opioid treatment program, and it. I mean it changed my perspective, not only on being a doctor, renewed my love for being a doctor for, for sure, uh, but also my perspective more more generally and widely in, in life. I was just absolutely astounded by the way these patients tell me they're treated within the healthcare system. I, I mean, it, it makes me, you know, kind of angry to think that my um, colleagues don't view this as a, a disease that is treatable um, and, and still are stuck in a mode that uh, is, is a little bit uh, medieval, if you will. Um, so thank you again for coming on and speaking to medical students. Um, I hope that, that your work, we in some sense can continue it, and I would urge the students to uh, really take to heart everything in this series and, uh, you know, today, what Dr. Volkov is, is uh, the wisdom that you're going to impart to us. So uh, this week, October 18th through 24 of 2021 is National Addiction Treatment Week, and the focus this year is on the next generation, that's you guys. Uh, the future leaders in healthcare, our future f uh, physicians. So um, you should go to treataddictionsavelives.org and follow at Treatment Week on Twitter to keep up with the week's activities. There's some webinars, online events, Twitter chats, all um, you know focused on the specialty of uh, addiction medicine and teaching the future uh, physicians and, and current trainees um, about all things related to addiction medicine. So please check that out. Um, all right. So you have the um, uh, that award I mentioned above about uh, uh, during your medical school. So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Volkov, to take the position to go back and become a medical student for just one moment. Um, which hopefully was not too traumatic an experience for you. But we open each uh, episode here with a, a USMLE-style practice question, and this one, uh, thanks to MedBullets for uh, letting us use this, is a 25-year-old male who presents to the emergency department with altered mental status. He was found down in the middle of the street. His past medical history is unknown. His temperature is 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 104 over 64. Pulse is 70 per minute. Respirations are five per minute. And oxygen sat is 91% on room air. The patient's being resuscitated in the trauma bay. And our lead in here is which of the following was the most light was most likely to be found on physical examination. And we've got A, ataxia, B, conjunctival injection, C, meiosis, or D, mydriasis. So if you were a <laughs> if you were a, a second year medical student, third year medical student, um, 
how, how would you approach this uh, question here? Just, just... Uh, I would smile when it's such a simple question to answer. It's uh, meiosis. I mean, you have someone with such very low respiration in the current environment. I've actually, you see someone lose consciousness, a 25-year-old man, the probability that this individual is suffering from an opioid intoxication is very high. And so you sort of, you will very likely see meiosis. Of course, you have to, if, if the person lost consciousness because they, for example, were over-intoxicated with alcohol, you could also smell it. So it's this one is an easy ball to catch. Yes, this this was this was a, a softball um, for sure. But, you know, it provides the, uh, I guess, the, the linchpin for what... Um, has has become the focus of uh, addiction in uh, as a field it seems in well a focus of concern for addiction within the context of the profession of medicine that's the opiate crisis um, the opiate uh, epidemic and I I would really really urge students as I've done uh, throughout this series to um, really um, you know, consider the consequences of just providing and prescribing, you know, opiates willy-nilly, as it were, um, without properly counseling patients and, and monitoring them um, for, you know, appropriate use because, you know, you get on opiates and you're on for a little too long and then you stop, you're, you're going to have withdrawal. And, and people don't know that a lot of times. And so iatrogenic uh, addiction is is definitely a, a, a thing. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. And as you're speaking, of course, the memories come back uh, to my brain in terms of where I've seen the patients that I've seen exactly under those circumstances that were prescribed the opioids because of a medical procedure. And they were not even asked a very elemental question. Have you, had, uh, have you ever had an addiction in the past? to any drug and importantly to have you ever been addicted to opioids. And I've seen patients who had a history of heroin addiction be given opioids and immediately relapse uh, despite two decades of actually being in sobriety. And I've seen these patients go ahead and die from an overdose. So it's, it's really uh, emphasizing what a horrible gap because this should not be happening. If you are going to be prescribing, first of all, if you are going to be interviewing a patient, you should screen for substance use disorders, for drug use. And then if they do have drug use, screen for substance use disorder. It's crucial that we do that. And particularly, if you're going to be prescribing an opiate medication, you need to know what are the vulnerabilities of that patient. And there may be circumstances, one actually with severe, severe, severe pain, that you may decide, despite the fact that that person does have a risk for addiction because of their past history, to still give them an opioid, but then you have to be very, very cautious and you have to actually have an agreement with the patient of describing to him or her your concern and monitor very, very carefully. And it also highlights in those circumstances for you to be much more incentivized to look for alternative interventions. So it is crucial. And again, I've seen it too many times and, and, and obviously the worst scenarios is when you end up with someone that overdoses and dies. But it also becomes very, very difficult for patients that have never had a history of addiction in their lives, becoming addicted to their opioid medications and from that completely disrupting their, their everyday life and their families. 
So we have a responsibility to prescribe properly, and we have a responsibility to actually evaluate our patients. And so if you're a medical student, then what um, what should you get in the habit of asking in, in general um, patients to screen for substance use disorders? Basically, I think that we, we all as physicians and whether you're a medical student or a specialist should be asking about, of, um, do you take drugs? And if you take drugs, um, what type of drugs and how frequently do you take, take them? And, and if the answers are yes, whether it is alcohol or tobacco or cocaine, to inquire about it uh, and in, in a way that is not different with no judgmental the way of addressing it so that you can make the, the patient feels comfortable. And, and recognizing that, for example, and this is something that I've encountered a lot, that some physicians, for example, don't like to ask questions to older women, do you drink at night? Because they feel sort of embarrassed to ask those questions when in reality um, by not asking they are jeopardizing the health of, of, of that patient. So, so you should not feel at all in any way embarrassed to ask about drug taking patterns and you should encourage your, uh, your patients to tell you about it. And uh, so we've had actually a campaign that went to uh, speak to your doctor. So trying to also educate patients that there's nothing embarrassing to, 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 to speak about if you do have a problem with addiction. That's what doctors are there for, to actually be able to help you. And so it, uh, teaching and in, in educating how to ask these questions in a way that's not judgmental and to know how to, if the answer is yes, I do have a problem, to have the resources to know how you're going to intervene. Because that's the other reason why some physicians do not ask the question. They don't know what to do if a person says, yes, you know, doctor, I've been drinking more and more at night. I just cannot sleep or I'm smoking marijuana all the time. If I don't do it, I get very, very anxious. I have no longer any pleasure but smoking marijuana. Um, if you don't, if they ask you those questions, you should be uh, prepared to actually um, do either a treatment intervention, depending on the severity of the situation, or referring the patient to specialized uh, care. Yeah. So th this uh, brings up a good uh, good point. I think that a lot of the idealism that brings us to to this profession. Um, gets kind of trained out of us along the way, um, based on <laughs> just the way medical education uh, needs to change. Um, if you're a medical student, you witness this sort of stigmatizing language, or as like I've I've heard I hear these stories like every day from patients. You know, I went to a primary, a new primary care doc, or I, I went to a person you referred me to, and as soon as I told them, like you told me to, that I'm on methadone their whole demeanor changed. They started treating me a lot different. Um, and, and some of these are, are patients who, you know, even have been stable in recovery. And uh, do, do you think there is a, a way for medical students to, <laughs> I don't want to say even gently, but to, to advocate for patients, to advocate for a, a different way of approaching um, the problem of addiction when they witness senior residents or, or attendings do something that is uh, 
frankly, like unethical, um, like treating a patient differentially because of their history of addiction. Yeah, no, and I think absolutely. And, and, and medical students actually should be trained and educated on how to uh, confront a situation like that one. And it's going to be, of course, very much dependent on the level of power that exists. And again, I rely on my own experiences when I was um, I just an assistant uh, professor. I had just finished my residency and the head of the unit, basically a very renowned psychiatrist. And I was on the emergency. I was on emergency call. So I admitted a patient with a substance use disorder into the inpatient unit. And he reprimanded me on the next Monday for admitting them. He says, we do not admit patients with addictions into the unit. And I asked him why. And he said to me, well, because they don't behave properly. They are not good patients. And I think that the notion there in a situation like this one is to intervene and make actually a statement that uh, basically uh, uh, will, will hopefully change the practice of this particular individual. In this situation, and, uh, and again, this is why I'm basically uh, uh, looking at it from my own experience, because the power differential was so gigantic and there was not a sensitivity or an alertness of discrimination against addiction. I brought it up and I actually, um, but it didn't go any further. And, and they continue to reject patient admissions for if they have an addiction into the inpatient unit. I, um, so, but now circumstances are different. And I do think that, but I do think that it is valuable that there is a mechanism that will facilitate the transmission of these, of, of these complaints in a way that is productive. If you're a medical student, of course, the power differential is even greater, but um, there should be either to, if you're a medical student, to, to the, the, uh, someone that represents them, a ways of voicing these behaviors. And we're doing it right now, for example, as it relates to bullying, as it relates to sort of discrimination for women, as it relates to discrimination uh, for, for black people. We have, we're creating mechanisms and, and training for people to actually change their their actual the way that they interact, but also training them in terms of how to communicate if their practice was unwanted. If someone sees that it's basically doing um, a sexual uh, inappropriate behavior of an attending towards a research a laboratory a student, how do you actually intervene? Because by not intervening, we're condoning. So we, I mean, we cannot be silent. The issue is how to intervene in a way that you don't. Uh, and what happens is many times they, there can be a revenge. So, and we need to understand these dynamics because it's easier said than actually, and the person then confronts the attending, and then the, the it so happens that the student does not get a good grade and doesn't go into the next stage of their their education. So we have to educate. Um, medical students and residents and physicians on processes by which they can communicate this such that the, uh, the behavior does not get perpetuated. And, and there's always like opportunities. I, I find that there's always ways of saying things in a very, very diplomatic manner that minimizes the harms. And so, for example, the other one, the, the notion of uh, opioid-born babies, like crack babies. And I've seen this actually among my colleagues at um, a at very high level. And I just sort of says, you know, I, I just want to point to you 
that this uh, term is demeaning to these children, is stigmatizing. And if you say it, you're not just being judgmental, you sort of says this is something that, that actually is recognized. You can change behavior, and a lot of people will, will listen. And I think that's, um, that, I, I, that, that will also happen in some instances. Now, can they just say Dr. Volkov from uh, NIDA said that uh, that's stigmatizing language and we should avoid it and then uh, give, him, give him your email? Absolutely, yes. I think that it is, we're very <laughs> sensitive to the whole issue of stigmatizing language and how to address it. But I also am aware that we need to create systems in healthcare and in education that actually provide a means for people to communicate situations that are discriminating, whether it is for yeah. addiction or for racial or for sexual, whatever it is. We, that is the way that we can ensure that these practices don't continue. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, let's get into some uh, the more uh, uh, meaty questions here. Um, broad, uh, you, I've heard it said. Uh, I've heard you say on some some lectures that, that you've given. Um, you've referred to addiction as a a disease of free will, and I, I liked that term. And I was just wondering if you could expound on what makes addiction a disease of free will. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of like when when we speak about diabetes and circumstances where it's a disease where your body cannot properly metabolize uh, glucose. And uh, so it highlights uh, the main the main pathology underlying the, all of the symptoms that we observe. And if we want to uh, basically identify the pathology in the brain that helps us understand the, the behavioral dysregulation that ensure that ensues when you are addicted, I would say it's basically you are damaging the neurobiological substrates that are necessary for exerting free will. And sort of by free will, I, I basically mean. Are you as an individual with consciousness analyzing a situation and based on the, your knowledge and uh, what you are aiming to achieve your goals, you make a decision of what your behavior will be, uh, what the, the behavioral choice you're going to make. And once you make that decision, you carry it through. But in addiction, um, first of all, the ability to perceive advantages and disadvantages and the ability to decide what is the optimal choice and, and, and even if you uh, do choose the optimal choice, you cannot carry it through because you don't have the capabilities of, of actually sustaining that self-regulation. Like I say, I'm not going to eat this chocolate and I sustain that, that notion of I'm not going to eat it or I'm going to go exercise and I sustain that effort needed to exercise. That, that capacity is uh, damaged by, by drugs and, and, and in the more severe the addiction, the worse the, the damage to the areas of the brain that allows us to actually exert uh, self-regulation and exert free will. And that's why I call it free will, because without it, what is free will? If I cannot actually choose, and even if I choose, I cannot carry it through, then I've been robbed of my free will. I become a slave of uh, automatic responses that have been actually strengthened by the effects of drugs um, in memory systems. Yeah. Now, do you see um, similar 
kind of um, brain changes in substance use disorders as other, you know, like, quote, behavioral addictions, things like people who um, have problematic use of pornography or internet gaming, gambling, those sorts of things? Well, we, we have, as a researcher, I've been investigating very much uh, whether what, what are the common elements of addiction to different drugs and also um, compulsive um, food consumption of, of oxygenic food, which is uh, shares many clinical characteristics that are similar to addiction. And we have been able to actually identify the common elements that are disrupted in drug addictions and then in this compulsive overeating of obesogenic food um, that basically explain that account for the uh, compulsivity in the pattern of behaviors and the inability to refrain as well as the impulsive choices. All of that is very, very similar. And, but, but also it's clear that uh, each drug has its unique effects. And so there are also some issues that are unique to obesity because when you are uh, consuming um, obesogenic food, you are also producing massive disruption in the metabolic um, metabolism throughout multiple organs. And, and that is not, uh, that is unique to, to obesogenic food. When you are taking, for example, cocaine, you're producing massive damage to blood vessels. And uh, when you're taking opiates, you're producing massive, da massive damage to immune mechanisms. So there are common elements and then they are unique. And those, um, the importance about all of these common elements is if you target interventions to strengthen self-regulation, for example, or to decrease the um, hypersensitized uh, the hypersensitization of conditioning and negative emotions. If you treat these two elements that are crucial in, in the addiction phenotype, whether it is drugs or food, you can improve both of these conditions. Gotcha. And so that, that brings me to a question that, that still exists. I'm, I'm sure that you would address a lot, and that is uh, treating addiction as a disease. Um, I, I've been surprised to see that if somebody is on heroin or fentanyl, like all the heroin around here, where I'm at in Cleveland, uh, is uh, if we put somebody on methadone, I mean, it, first off, it blows my mind that after a month, you know, if <laughs> their lives have started to change in such profound ways like it's so encouraging as a physician to see but i mean you see somebody without hope in their eyes and then a month later they've got a little spark of it it it's it's incredibly encouraging and awesome but to me that's that's proof that something like methadone or buprenorphine in the case of oud is is um, a, a valid treatment for a real disease but still you know i even heard my psychiatrist wife um was like i think every um, person who's on mat should have a plan to either get off it completely or um to get put on like vivitrol and i thought ah, you know, we disagree on this um how, how do you address those objections to using something like methadone or buprenorphine as, quote, like replacing one drug for another? Well, um, and I, that is unfortunately a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of the effects of medications for opioid use disorder. 
And equating, for example, methadone with something like heroin or fentanyl basically does not take into account that, first of all, pharmacologically, these drugs are quite different. And second, that doses and routes of administration uh, also are very different. And we know that routes of administration uh, significantly impact the addictiveness of drugs. And for example, you can use amphetamines to treat children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder quite safely, provided that you give these medications orally. If you were to inject amphetamines, you will basically have a very high risk of addictive behavior. And you will end up with one of the most addictive drugs. Amphetamines, injected amphetamines are highly, highly addictive. When you give methadone, which is an opioid agonist, a full opioid agonist, you're giving it orally, and the drug itself gets into the brain much more slowly than when you're giving heroin, particularly if you're injecting it. And so that difference by itself makes a huge effect in terms of by slowing the entry, you are obviating the sharp rise that's necessary for the drug to produce conditioning, to, to actually generate that learning process that will lead you to crave it and to generate a high. So that's a first start. The other issue with methadone is that um, it is a much lower drug in terms not just of getting into the brain, but also leaving the brain. And that stabilizes the signaling. And one of the problems that we see in people that are addicted to opioids, whether it's fentanyl or heroin, that they are going up and down and they're continuously going into intoxication, withdrawal, intoxication, withdrawal. And that disarray uh, physiologically influences negatively multiple systems and promotes uh, intense, intense craving. So to the extent that with methadone, you are maintaining a sustained level, you are minimizing those negative changes. So that's with methadone. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So even if you occupy all of the opioid receptors in your brain, the effects that it will have are only going to be a fraction of what something like heroin can do. Buprenorphine is also going into the brain extremely slowly, and it leaves the brain very, very slowly. So you have the elements of uh, you will never get the intensity of the rewarding effects, even if you inject buprenorphine that you get with heroin. But then if you give it orally, that's even slower much more. And um, by allowing it to go out, it minimizes withdrawal symptoms uh, because it goes very, very, very slowly. Buprenorphine also blocks the kappa receptors. And the kappa receptors are along with the myopia receptor, the second of three receptors. The kappa receptors, though, are almost like the opposite of the effects of the myopia receptors. You know, myopia stimulation makes us feel good, gives us a sense of well-being. Kappa receptor makes us feel stressed, dysphoricity, anxious. And in addiction, the more you actually become addicted, and that's whether it's opioids or cocaine or methamphetamine, there is an upregulation of this kappa system that is very, very aversive. And uh, to the extent that buprenorphine blocks those kappa receptors, you're going to be able to stabilize the negative mood in these patients, which is one of the factors that leads them to relapse. And finally, naltrexone, of course, is an antagonist, so it doesn't stimulate any of the rewarding effects of a new opioid agonist. It's a new opioid antagonist. But naltrexone is also a kappa antagonist. So not just it interferes with a drug like heroin to bind to the receptor, but it also protects them from the negative effects of the hypersensitization to the kappa system in addiction. 
and that's why it's, they're very different. And uh, but but it's 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 uh, again in, in to a certain extent the lack of understanding about how these medications work. Number one, but it's also the whole stigmatization of addiction as different from other conditions, where you may allow the use of insulin for someone with diabetes, with no questioning that you need that in order to for your physiology to work properly. Uh, that is not the way that people look at many instances at the use of medications. And they say, you really need to stop all medications to really be in recovery. And I, my, my answer is, of course, theoretically, yes, you would want everybody not to rely on insulin. You would want everybody to be able to basically achieve recovery without the need of any medication. But that reality is much more complex. And to the extent that many individuals are unable to do so, these medications can help them achieve recovery. You can be on recovery while taking these medications. They are not exclusionary of one another. Now, when, with, with um, opiate use disorders, we, we have these three medications to uh, like treat the, the, you know, the, the biological um, parts of addiction. Um, you know, can't mess, can't give you a pill or or a medication to to fix you know um, terrible life circumstances or unhealthy relationships. But you know, we have these medications for that portion of of recovery. Um, are we going to see things like that for cocaine or methamphetamine or or gosh benzos? We are. We would we would like very much to be able to have access to medications that can help patients achieve recovery, just like we had with um, alcohol or we have for opioids or we have for tobacco. But we currently, there are no FDA approved medications for either cocaine, methamphetamine, cannabis, inhalants, benzodiazepines. So we are working. I mean, this is an area that we are prioritizing and encouraging researchers to come with different strategies and innovative approaches to provide uh, medications that would help persons uh, achieves a sort of ultimately sobriety and recovery. And there are some interesting work going on. And there are some, uh, this, this year, there was a very interesting a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which combined two medications that are already approved by the FDA. And that drug combination, which was bupropion, which we use on the one hand as an antidepressant, but it's also used to treat tobacco dependence. And naltrexone, which we use as a treatment, not just for opioid use disorder, but also alcohol use disorder. That combination of these two medications currently available significantly reduce the risk of relapse and drug taking in uh, methamphetamine use disorder patients with moderate to severe uh, disease. So this is very encouraging because in, in a way it's, it's basically can start to be implemented. We are. We aim to actually, of course, uh, reproduce that study so that it can then be used and hopefully consolidated. So perhaps the FDA can give a new indication um, for the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder. The same thing with cocaine. And, and currently, uh, one of the aspects of what we're observing is more and more uh, the common the mixture of drugs, methamphetamine with opioids, cocaine with opioids. And in, in many instances, patients don't know that they are being exposed to these drug combinations. It's just an illicit market that is contaminating one with the other. But in others, they are seeking it out. But regardless of what the circumstances are, 
we're ending having people that have um, dependence to both a stimulant drug and an opioid, uh, an opioid drug. So combinations, for example, that target uh, um, a drug that we use for the treatment of opioid use disorder, like buprenorphine, for example, by the side with naltrexone, for example, have shown to provide some preliminary evidence of benefit for the treatment of cocaine use disorder. And we are aiming to study it more extensively to for, for methamphetamine use disorders. Okay, cool. Um, what about uh, behavioral addictions? Um, are there any uh, medical treatments that have proven uh, effective or uh, do we rely mainly on psychotherapy and, and other sort of um, behavioral interventions? Well, for, um, for in general, for behavioral addictions, we rely more on behavioral interventions and so forth, also for stimulant use disorder. We rely more on behavioral interventions. Um, and perhaps the, the one with the largest effects has been contingency management uh, by itself or combined with um, other interventions like com community treatment reinforcement programs that actually provide alternative reinforcers. So those are, are tend to be um, beneficial. We also know that group treatment interventions can also help certain patients uh, in their compulsive patterns of intake. And, and this actually takes advantage of the value of uh, um, meaningful the interactions between people as one of the strengths that we can use to provide support and resilience and help people that actually uh, not take drugs. So these alternative reinforces, uh, whether it's money, whether it's community, whether it's interaction with someone that cares for you, that is not judgmental, have been shown to be valuable. And, and also for these, these uh, behavioral addictions, in the case of uh, compulsive overeating, the, um, there's also several interventions that have been targeted specifically to decrease uh, metabolic syndrome and to decrease weight. And, but curiously and interestingly, some of these interventions also uh, appear to have effects on the sensitivity of the reward systems. So even though they are targeted specifically for the loss of weight or for control with diabetes, they are proving to have some, some studies have shown positive effects. For example, glucagon-like peptide uh, has been shown to have beneficial effects for alcohol and other addictions. And again, that is uh, uh, obviously a medication that we use to control diabetes. And, and similarly, uh, for other interventions, there is an effect that uh, some of the beneficial effects are, are driven downstream by its actions in the brain. Gotcha. Um, let's see, if you could, what would you change about medical education um, to, to help address the crisis of, of addiction? Well, I would start by making it uh, indispensable and actually and strengthening the uh, curriculum on training and education, educating medical students on, on drugs and substance use disorder. And just actually provide quality evidence courses. Just like actually I was in, in thinking about this, this uh, podcast, I was thinking about actually obviously of myself as a medical student and sort of recollecting which were the courses that were most meaningful to me in terms of the quality. And I remember having really fantastic courses on cardiology, gastroenterology that put me in a very strong basis 
to as a medical doctor with no specialty to be able to screen and address the main needs of, of patients. And uh, I come from Mexico and it's a six year medical school. And so the last year, your sixth year, you have to actually go and do your social service. And in your social service, you have to basically act as a doctor. And I ended up in a community in the jungle. And, and as a medical doctor, you are basically trained to intervene to solve the most frequent medical conditions. But I wasn't trained to actually help to address or even know how to, to screen for substance use disorder. And this is not because it's Mexico, because it's exactly the same situation in the United States. So medical students do not get the training in how to screen and someone is positive. What is it that you need to do? And so when they are going to go into their specialties or general medicine, they're going to be very ill-prepared to address this. So um, we need to start by changing the curriculum so that medical students are given an opportunity to learn about it. And that actually I would go in and to actually encourage like one of the things that I thought was so good for me in the training that I got in cardiology and gastroenterology is I did rotations. In, in places uh, where they were treating patients with cardiac diseases. So outpatient, inpatient, and the same thing for, for gastroenterological diseases. And there's no reason why we cannot have a rotation that will expose medical students to an outpatient clinic as well as inpatient or consultation clinic. Because uh, believe me, the, um, the need for uh, interventions and, and consultation for substance use disorders is extremely, extremely high. They actually, not just that these, these uh, substance use disorders are so prevalent, but because the fact that people that have substance use disorders have such a high prevalence of medical conditions that uh, lead them to be more likely to end up in the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think there's there's an argument to be made that it it, it could be one of the required rotations in, in the clinical years just because it touches on pretty much every specialty. There isn't really a specialty that is untouched by addiction um, in one way or another. Um, but I don't want to take too much more of your time because you are a very busy person um, with a lot going on. But before we depart, uh, any last words of uh, wisdom um, that you'd like to tell medical students? Yeah, I think that, I mean, what I would want to say is that basically there's no uh, reason to be uncomfortable to ask about drugs. And that if you are not asking it, instead of doing a favor to the patient because you say, I don't want to embarrass them, they're actually doing a disfavor to them because in many instances, they're waiting for that opportunity to ask the question. And I can say it for my own self. When I go to the doctor, there are certain things that I don't volunteer so easily. Uh, so if the doctor asks me the question, I, then I'm much more likely to tell them about that problem. So speak up with your patients. The patients trust you and you're in a unique opportunity to actually make a difference. And that can be actually to, irrespective of the age of your patients or their cultural background and whether they are starting to experiment with drugs or whether they are already severely addicted, an intervention by you as a clinician that have a huge impact. And so that's what I would like to leave in terms of a message that we all in the clinical field uh, have a unique opportunity to actually help patients uh, avoid the very adverse consequences, I would say devastating consequences that can emerge from 
addiction. Um, and it's also our obligation. If we, uh, once we get into medicine, where we are there to help others and um, not to basically become indifferent or cynical about, uh, about this. We went to medicine because of the, I would sort of say, privilege of being able to help others. And I think it's a wonderful gift. Absolutely. Um, oh, can you say anything about the strength of patients who suffer from addictions? Because it's they're to, it seems to me that they they generally tend to be very intelligent compared to to other people. And I don't know if that's uh, just a, a sense of of things that I get. But um, are there things about people with a, addiction that they have as baseline strengths? Well, we sort of say, I, I mean, I think that like any other disease or, I mean, we're all very different and there are unique strengths for certain patients and then others. I think that we like to try to understand, well, what are certain characteristics that may make a person more vulnerable to becoming addicted or or for depression or for schizophrenia. And, and there's some sort of traits that are more prevalent. And I would sort of say that in addiction, one of the things that I... I feel that, because um, I asked my question, if we know that there is a very strong heritability component, and to me, biology is so intelligent that it's actually, if you do have genes that make you vulnerable, it is because they have a, a, an effect that has a beneficial in a different environment. And as I think about it in terms of addiction, what, what comes to my mind is that if you are vulnerable to conditioning, um, and by conditioning, you learn to rapidly associate a stimuli with the, its reinforcement. And then that conditioning drives your behavior uh, almost automatically. And this is obviously can, is at the basis of how we, we start to become addicted, we become conditioned to the drug. But conditioning to other people, for example, if you have that vulnerability, could give you unique uh, strengths because it would form very, very strong emotional attachments. And I think that that's likely to be one of the uh, the reasons, perhaps, and I'm being very speculative here, of why genes have persisted. We're social and uh, creatures, and and to the extent that we prioritize uh, our relationships with others, we're willing to fight for them. That basically intends a very powerful conditioning response, including caring for babies. So um, I would say that's what would come into, into my brain um, as where I would think that uh, overall, and again, I don't want to generalize because I do think that every person is unique. Amen. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. And um, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And good luck. <laughs>